I had to do a, an exegetical paper on Psalm 113, uh, this psalm that we just sang, and ever since then it has been one of my favorites. Our God is high and lifted up, and He looks down upon the sons of men and sees our needs and blesses us. Is basically Psalm 113. It is good to see the Morrises with us, even though they are hiding up in the balcony. If you have an opportunity to see them afterwards, I'm sure they would like to greet you. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. This uh, week we are in Genesis 38. Let me pray. Father, I ask for your blessing on uh, this, the reading and proclamation of your word. Help us to see Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen. And for those of you who are visiting, it's been my practice since we are working our way through such long passages of Scripture to to uh, work through, read the passage as as we come to it. So we'll get to the reading of the passage um, in a few moments. Before the nation of Israel moved into the promised land, uh, Moses would meet with God in front of the tent of meeting which was outside the Israelite camp. And every time he would meet with God, well, you know what happened, his face would begin to glow. And it would glow for several days afterwards. And so uh, it was disturbing to the people of Israel uh, because his face was glowing. So he would wear a cloth or a veil over his face until the glow went away. And I feel like I should be wearing a veil or a cloth this morning while I preach. Uh, not because I've been meeting with God and my face is glowing. Uh, rather, because the, the subject matter of Genesis 28, I mean, sorry, of Genesis 38 is so embarrassing that my face is likely to be uh, very red for the next 25 minutes or so. Um, parents, I want to set your worries at ease. I have worked very hard to keep this, um, keep a PG, PG rating, uh, even though uh, we will be pushing beyond a PG-13 rating just by reading the text. Uh, this is one of those passages that you go, what is going on here? <laughs> it, it would have been easy, it seems to me, for God to leave this chapter out of the Bible. It seems out of place, even with the, the, the whole uh, movement of Genesis. You have chapters 1 through 11 with the ancient history, chapters 12 uh, up through uh, chapter 37 with uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then it begins with Joseph, and then... Uh, chapters uh, 39 and following continue with Joseph, but then it takes a little sidetrack here to chapter 38. Um, and, uh, and it considers uh, Judah. And the fact that it seems out of place, rather than saying that it should not be included uh, in the Bible, I think rather God intended it this way to accentuate this passage of Scripture. Uh, I think God included it in the Bible with all its awkwardness uh, just to show how important it is for us to give our, uh, our attention to it. 
even though it contains some very uncomfortable subject matter. I think we often approach the Bible as if it were a series of heartwarming, uh, heartwarming stories that are designed to inspire us to be good people, to lead clean lives, to help us be moral. Uh, but uh, and so when we come across chapters like this, it stuns us, and we try and soft pedal uh, the wickedness that we observe, especially when that wickedness is being seen through the lives of the, the quote-unquote heroes of the Bible. I think we often try and recast the sins of the, the heroes of the Bible so that they don't look so bad. For a long time I thought this was simply a, a misunderstanding uh, of the depth of grace that caused uh, people and even some noted commentators to, to soft-pedal the wickedness. I think now I've, I, I understand better why we don't like the picture of wickedness that we see in the quote-unquote heroes of the Bible. And I think the reason is that they serve as a mirror for us. They serve in order that we might be able to see ourselves more clearly. And so when we look at them and they're a mirror for us, it's a horrifying image that is reflected back to us. The Bible, however, paints a very truthful picture of sin uh, so that when we see these heroes of grace, uh, or rather these heroes of the Bible, and we see their wickedness, we look then beyond them to our Savior who came to be the Savior of sinners. The reason for the uncomfortable subject matter is Judah and his perversity. So let's take a quick overview of his sins. First of all, we're going to see that Judah was, was more drawn to the Canaanites than he was to his own family. In verse 1, we're going to see him leaving his family and he's going to visit his friend Hira the Adolamite. Hira only appears uh, here in this chapter. In fact, the Adolamites only appear here in this chapter in connection with Hira. Um, we know for certain that the Adolamites were not Israelites or any of the peoples that were descended from Abraham. We never hear any of the Israelites being described as Adolamites. Um, none of Abraham's descendants are described this way, whether it be Ishmael, uh, Esau, or anyone else. And so I think it's easy to infer easy for us to infer that Hirid the Adullamite was some form of Canaanite, whether it be Amorite or, or, or some other, um, some other uh, type of, of Canaanite. Also, uh, Judah did not marry someone from uh, within, his, within his clan or, or within any kind of association with any descendants of Abraham. Rather, it says that he married a Canaanite woman and she bore him three sons. And when he, when he met this woman, and we're never told her name, he did not exactly romance her. 
the Bible says simply, he saw her, he took her, he went into her. Possibly, um, this could be very similar circumstances in which Shechem tried to romance uh, Dinah, if you remember that passage. So let's look at the Scriptures. Verses 1-5 through in Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezev, which when she bore him. I think this passage um, points out that Judah was a man of unrestrained desires. What Judah wanted, Judah took. What Judah wanted to do, he did. He sees this woman, this daughter of Shua. She's a Canaanite, even though they are not to be marrying any of the Canaanite women. No problem for Judah. He sees her. He wants her. He takes her. Judah's character was the opposite of a true Christian character. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see none of that in Judah. And then Judah seems to be an uninvolved father. He names his first son Ur, which, by the way, and I don't know if this is, um, has any significance, um, Ur is actually the word for Hebrew. Uh, uh, the word for Hebrew for evil spelled backwards. So, uh, anyway, his son was evil. So evil, in fact, in the sight of the Lord that the Lord removed him from the earth. The Lord killed him, it says. Um, I think that's the, well, that's the first time that I can, I can think of where God put an individual to death just because he was so wicked. I, I can remember back to Genesis 6-5 where God saw that the wickedness of mankind in general was so great that He wiped them out in the flood. But here, an individual is so wicked that God decides it is best to rid the earth of him. It doesn't speak much for Judah's involvement as a parent. In ancient Near Eastern culture, when a man died without giving his wife an offspring, and then the next son, and the next son was not married, then the, the, the son next in line was to provide a wife for the child. This child that was produced by the widow of the first, um, by the first husband, and and the the uh, union of the second um, second son. This this child would step in as the heir of the father's wealth. 
So by, by providing offspring, the, ne- the brother next in line was being pushed back in the line of inheritance. And so Ur, being wicked, God killed him, even though he had married uh, this woman named Tamar. Then Onan was to step in and provide her with an offspring. And Onan thought this was a raw deal. You know, she's going to have an offspring and he's going to get my inheritance. So he refuses to have relations with her. Or, or rather, um, I'm sorry, instead of, of having, instead of refusing to have relations with her, uh, he used her for his own self gratification. I know this all sounds confusing, but uh, here's. I'm treading lightly because of some very crude behavior. Uh, I'll read the passage and you'll see what I mean. Verses 6 through 10. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give uh, offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. So this is Judah's children. Before I move on, I need to address one topic that I'd frankly rather skip. Uh, The previous pastor uh, here at Westminster had uh, over 10 children, 11 or 12, and he preached an infamous sermon that I've heard a lot about um, and stated that it was wrong to practice birth control as I understand it. And since this position was stated publicly from from this pulpit uh, in the past, uh, and used verses 9 and 10 as scriptural support, I feel like I need to address it very briefly. Now those of you who have received pre-marriage counseling for, from me have heard my thoughts, uh, at least those of you who are younger. Uh, the couples that uh, I counseled and then married later in life, uh, of course, did not hear about all, hear about all this. Uh, actually, I do think I brought it up with Wayne and Kathy. <laughs> um, uh, uh, my, my views on, on birth, con- birth control, just, just in jest. Um, just to see Kathy's reaction, frankly. Uh, I believe that... So, so what do I believe about birth control? Well, I believe that children are a blessing from the Lord and that we should seek to have a full quiver of them. And because of our covenant theology teaches us that God has promised to be a God to us and to our children and that He has commanded us to fill the earth uh, and multiply, I think that we should, as believers in Christ, as Christians, should aim at having larger families. However, I'm well aware that different families have different sized quivers. And the quiver is from, in the Proverbs, it talks about children are a blessing of the, from the Lord and you should have a full quiver of them, like a, like a quiver of arrows. You know, if you're a warrior, you want to have a full quiver of arrows. You don't want to run out in the middle of battle. Um, 
So as I said, I, I believe I'm well aware that different families have different sized quivers. I recognize that circumstances vary. Uh, we used to have biblical wisdom. I'm sorry. We have to use biblical wisdom and guidance as we plan our families. In short, I believe that we should have as many children as God gives us and that, and that the, birth, the use of birth control is not wrong. I wanted six children. My wife wanted four, I like to say, uh, tongue-in-cheek, that uh, we compromised with four. Uh, but actually, it was a mutual decision at the time. Um, after Mandy became pregnant with Will, uh, it, it, was, it was clear to both of us. Uh, we both knew that Will was to be the caboose. <laughs> anyway, so I, I think that there is, is Christian freedom in regard to the use of birth control um, and Christian wisdom. And I think that because God has given us the command to be fruitful and multiply plus the covenant promises, I think we should aim at having bigger children. So, uh, anyway, back to Judah. Um, Judah lied to Tamar because he was worried that um, she was like some kind of, of black widow, that his first sons died because they were married to her. And so his third son would die because of her. And so he had no intention of giving Tamar to his third son. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. He had no intention of giving this third daughter, I mean, this third son, uh, to her. Not only that, you notice how it says in verse 11, "Remain a widow in your father's house." He didn't want her to be a drag on his own finances. Yeah, go back to your father. Remain a widow with him. He can pay for your, your, your living and things like this. Judah is a selfish, deceitful man. Now, when Tamar realized that Judah was not going to give his youngest son to her as a husband, she decided to take matters into her own hands. Now, as we've been marching through Genesis, whenever we talk about someone taking matters into their own hands, We've been conditioned to recognize that this is not pleasing to the Lord. And so what, what Tamar does is not pleasing to the Lord. Uh, she is acting in desperation, but it is still a horrible thing that she did. Well, what did she do? She pretended to be a prostitute. Uh, and when she heard that Judah was, was going up to the town of Timnah to shear his sheep, uh, she decides she's going to go ahead of him. She pretends to be a, a prostitute. Apparently Judah had a reputation uh, for doing what he, what he did on business trips so that uh, Judah would be an easy mark in her mind. Sure enough, Judah's heading up to Timnah uh, on his business trip. He sees a prostitute and decides to turn aside and visit her. 
And she had covered her face, as most of the temple prostitutes would do. So he had no idea that he was visiting with his daughter-in-law. Tamar asked for a pledge to make sure that uh, she would be paid. Actually, that's not why she asked for the pledge. Uh, But that's the reason that she gave to him. And then he thoughtlessly gives her his signet, his cord, and his staff, which would be almost like given, given to her uh, his wallet with his um, with his driver's license and stuff like that, that that would be easily recognized. And of course, this visit um, that Judah had with uh, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, uh, results in her becoming pregnant. Verses 12 through 19. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. Wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. This goes to demonstrate that Judah was a man of perverse desires. His appetite for fulfilling his lustful desires was great. Uh, We like to think that because we live in a culture, uh, in a society that is um, with increased exposure to sexuality and to perversity, that we have more temptation and therefore uh, we have more excuse than those who lived in previous generations. That is not true. Every generation has the same hearts as the previous generations. Furthermore, perversity and lust are perversity and lust regardless of generational circumstances. Let me say a word about Tamar's actions. Uh, She was wronged by Judah. And what she did was answered his wrong by him not giving... um, his third and youngest son to her, she answered his wrong with her wrong. Just because we are wronged does not mean that we can respond wrongly. Uh, That just continues the the cycle of sin and counter-sin. So she is not uh, righteous here herself. But then Judah, oh, he becomes very... Um, very earnestly self-righteous when he heard that Tamar was pregnant. He was so indignant that he immediately wanted her to be burned to death. But you know what is worse in God's eyes than her becoming pregnant? It is idolatry. 
It is false worship. And Judah thought nothing of turning aside to visit what we would assume to be a Canaanite uh, temple prostitute. The Canaanites employed prostitutes in their worship. If you practice fertility, uh, then the the ground that you own, the crops will be fertile and everything else. In other words, Judah was willing to give homage and false worship to a false Canaanite god in order that he might have a few moments of self-gratification. Verses 20-23. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute or the temple prostitute who is at Benayim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So it rings hollow that Judah, in all his self-righteousness, wants to kill his daughter-in-law with such brutality. Actually, I think what's really happening here is that he is most interested in getting rid of her so that he will be free from the obligation of having to offer her to his son. Um, And so that his son would be free to marry someone else and give him offspring. This is Judah. What do we know about Judah? What do we first think about when we think about Judah? Well, we think about the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, descended directly from Judah. A man. Judah was a man who was unrestrained, disengaged as a father, had reckless children. He was deceitful. He was self-centered. He desired and craved perversity. He was godless. He was brutal. This is the human ancestry of Christ. He is typical of the person who would say, if I came into if I came into church, the church building or the church roof would cave in. And yet The human ancestry of Christ is traced directly from Him. And not just from Him and some other child, but from this child uh, who was conceived by His daughter-in-law. And the Bible, instead of hiding this fact, trumpets it. You know uh, Matthew chapter 1? It goes through and it lists the genealogy of the Lord Jesus and it pauses with Rahab, the prostitute. It pauses with um, with Ruth, the Moabitess. It pauses with um, the wife of Uriah the Hittite who was murdered by David. And it pauses also 
this Tamar, the Canaanite, who dressed up like a prostitute in order to um, conceive by her father-in-law. Why does the Bible emphasize this? reason why is very simple and yet glorious so profound that we often miss it Christ came to die for sinners Christ came to save sinners Jacob is a mirror for us the whole history of Israel is a mirror for us. A lot of you tell me that it's hard to understand the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament with the understanding that Israel is going to sin and sin greatly and rebel against God almost at every turn, then it begins to make sense. That seems to be the common theme of every book of the Bible. And yet there's this also this parallel theme of God being faithful to those sinful people. And God sending His Son in spite of those sinful people. The Bible is a mirror for us. Don't soft-pedal your own sin. Don't hide it and cover it up because in so doing, you are missing the grace of the Lord Jesus. I became a Christian by reading the Bible in college. And I was reading through the New Testament. But strikingly, it wasn't seeing Jesus on every page of the New Testament that brought me to God. What brought me to God, what brought me to my knees, was seeing myself reflected on every page of Scripture, understanding how big a hypocrite I was and how unworthy I was of God's grace. How unworthy I could ever make myself of God's grace. And I cried out to God, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. And the grace of the Lord Jesus came in and flooded into my life and changed me, transformed me. It was very easy to take a very pedestrian view of the Christian life. You do the right things, you come to church, you pray, you read your Bible, and you just do the right things, and you have your little habits. Pause. Use the Bible as a mirror. Use Judah as a mirror, if need be. Um, in regard to his truthfulness, or lack thereof, in regard to his perverse cravings, in regard to his selfishness. Because when you see your sin, you see the Lord Jesus. I can't remember who said it. It may have been Robert Murray McShane. For every look that you take at yourself, look honestly. But for every look, take a hundred looks at Jesus Christ. In your Christian life, it won't be pedestrian. It won't be lifeless. It won't be simply going through the motions. Let's pray together.
Father. It is staggering that you would intentionally bring the, the our Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, from the lineage of Judah. It is staggering then that you would also trumpet Judah's sins in order that we might understand our own sins and our own need of a glorious Savior. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who are just going through the motions, even for very sincere believers who've taken their eyes off of Christ or the, the their gaze has been washed over by the love of the world or busyness or or painful circumstances remind them of Jesus' love for them. And I pray You would renew us. I pray that You would strengthen us. I pray You would pour out Your grace upon us continually. We ask in His name. Amen.